Okay. Welcome to the University of Minnesota School of Public Affairs, the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. You got the law school, the Humphrey School, and the business school. These are the professional schools, so it makes sense. Uh, I'm Larry Jacobs. I'm a faculty here at the University of Minnesota in the Humphrey School, and it's good to have you here. Um, we have some really great programs coming up. Uh, Theta Scotchpole, who's preeminent uh, scholar in the social sciences and one of the most preeminent progressive scholars uh, in the country, will be here on Wednesday at noon. Um, and uh, welcome you. That'll be. We're, she's going to talk about her research, but it's going to really be wide ranging. I think you'll be surprised by. Um, some of the things that she's going to say, which will in part be quite critical of other progressives. So if you're able to come, please do. Um, and we'll talk more about our programs coming up. Um, I do want to mention, as with all of our programs, we want to get you involved. Um, and um, we use question cards. The reason for doing that is not to weed out dissent. I love dissent. If you totally disagree what we're talking about, Give us your questions because that's my bias <laughs> towards those questions. Not that everyone else's questions won't be uh, factored in as well, but this is not to weed out alternative perspectives. We like that. Uh, the reason for doing it is uh, many of our programs are broadcast on public radio and picked up by other media, and uh, it's just much, much easier if there's like a, a kind of a, a clear stream of a conversation between two voices. It doesn't require editing, doesn't require the time that uh, goes into the engineering of that. That's the only reason. So uh, please bear with us on that. Uh, it's a real pleasure to invite uh, today's guest, um, uh, Alexander Hotel Fernandez. Um, Alex uh, is just out with a new book called State Capture, How Conservative Activists, Big Business, Businesses, and Wealthy Donors reshaped the American states and the nation. It's for sale outside, did I mention that? Okay, well it's for sale outside. Uh, I'm told it's, it's perfect for all occasions, birthdays. Easter. Easter, yeah. yes, so feel free to pick that up and Alex will be signing them afterwards. Alex is uh, what we describe in, in our area as a rising star. Uh, he graduated from Harvard three years ago. He's now at Columbia in the School of Public Affairs the School of International Public Affairs, uh, and uh, has published a stream of articles in some of our most impactful journals. He's got three books that are out or about to be out or in process. Um, it's just an extraordinary record. Um, and we're going to have a quite lively conversation. We've already kind of reviewed what that's going to look like, and I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, please welcome Alex. Well, thanks so much for coming, and thanks so much for the kind introduction, Larry. It's really exciting to be here to talk about state capture and the transformation of state policy and politics over the past decades, particularly in a place like the Humphrey School that thinks about the intersection between policy and politics in, in the real world. Before we get to our discussion, I wanted to give you a flavor of the book and some of my main arguments um, as we go into that discussion, sort of spoiling the ending, um, but I promise you it's still worth a read uh, um, of the full book. Um, so to give you a taste of my argument, I wanted to take you back to the 2016 election, um, as traumatic as that might be for, for some folks, but not the national election between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, but rather control for Iowa's state government, uh, your neighbor um, uh, in, in Minnesota. Um, now for the past two decades leading up to 2016, control of the Iowa State House had flipped back and forth between Democrats and Republicans, with neither party holding outright control of the governorship and the legislature. But all of that changed in 2016. Republicans gained full control of the state government after they flipped the state Senate. Um, and uh, accordingly, a number of people predicted that the state legislature would take policy in a different direction. They thought it would go in the direction of perhaps tax cuts, cuts to regulation, cuts to social programs, a typical Republican Republican agenda that you see in many states these days. But that's not what happened. Um, the first major item that Republicans pushed through the legislature uh, after they gained control of the State House in 2017 was not the standard Republican 
agenda of lower taxes or, or cuts to uh, labor regulations, but rather a sweeping set of changes to the ways in which labor union law was governed in the state. They proposed cutting back collective bargaining rights for nearly all public sector employees and imposing new requirements on unions that they undergo regular recertification elections. This bill was modeled after a similar initiative that Governor Scott Walker uh, championed as soon as he gained control of Wisconsin state government in 2011. And this transformation of Iowa law really poses a puzzle for political scientists who tend to think about policy as being the outcome of elections and public opinion. And I say that because the typical model is that politicians are elected on a particular platform responding to public opinion, and then they enact the sort of policies that they campaign on that are aligned with public opinion. But that's not what happened here. According to polls that were done right before this legislation was, was pushed through and right after, over 60% of Iowans opposed the cutbacks to public sector bargaining rights. They wanted to see collective bargaining rights for public sector employees. In addition, it was not a real campaign issue for most of the key Senate races that ended up flipping control of the Iowa State Senate. So where did this legislation come from if it wasn't coming from voters and it wasn't coming from the campaigns of rank-and-file Republicans? Well, to answer that question, I think it's helpful to go to the bill text um, that um, ended up enacting these changes. And doing so, you can see that the bill in Iowa bore striking resemblance to the legislation in Wisconsin that I just mentioned. And both of those bills bore striking resemblance in key phrases and concepts to a model bill proposal that had been put forward by an organization called the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC, a network of right-leaning lawmakers, businesses, and donors and activists uh, that I'll explain more about in a moment. But suffice to say that this legislation came directly from an ALEC model bill idea. We have further evidence for this um, from the leadership affiliations of the key Republicans in the state. All three Republican leaders in the legislature and, and in the governorship had ties to this organization. The House Speaker was a national chairwoman of ALEC at the time. The Senate Majority Leader was a state chairman of the uh, ALEC organization. And the governor himself was, in fact, a co-founder and early supporter of this organization. So that provides one part of the explanation. But as it turns out, ALEC wasn't the only organization on the ground promoting this bill uh, at the, uh, in, in Iowa's government. The second organization that was a national group but that had an in-state presence in Iowa was a group called Americans for Prosperity. It's a federated grassroots advocacy group, and I'll explain more about it in a moment, but it was a key player in the battle for Iowa's passage of this legislation. And we know that because shortly after the governor signed the bill into law, uh, the head lobbyist of Americans for Prosperity posted a picture on Twitter of him um, uh, shaking the governor's hand. It was a, a closed ceremony, and he was one of the few people who was allowed to attend, in part because of his efforts at whipping votes in the legislature until the wee hours of the morning to get the bill passed. The third organization that was present in Iowa that was pushing for this bill, cutting back collective bargaining rights, was the State Policy Network. It's a network of state-level, right-leaning think tanks that buttresses the work of ALEC and Americans for Prosperity. And in Iowa, that affiliate is the Public Interest Institute. Shortly after um, Republicans gained full control of the, of the Iowa state government, the Public Interest Institute began putting forward research reports and media commentary arguing that public sector bargaining cutbacks should be the number one priority for Republicans coming into office. And so in the book, I examine each of these organizations, ALEC, Americans for Prosperity, and the State Policy Network in more detail, spelling out exactly how they've evolved, why they've taken on the forms that they have, and how they have ended up having so much success in so many states like Iowa, pushing, among other things, cutbacks to labor union rights. And so ALEC, for instance, was founded in the 1970s, and as I mentioned, brings together state lawmakers, businesses, donors, and activists to draft these model bills. The State Policy Network was founded in 1986 and was substantially revamped in the early 2000s and buttresses Alec's work from the outside, providing, as we've seen, media commentary, research support to Alec model bills. 
And Americans for Prosperity is the most recent addition to what I call the conservative troika. Um, it was founded in 2004, but by now has turned out to be one of the most significant components of the troika. It is uh, present in over 36 states that cover over 80% of the population and has over 3 million activists who participate in a federated structure. So they have local field offices in a number of states, especially battleground states, state offices, and a national office as well. It's sort of paralleled structure to a political party. So I think state capture has something new to add to the conversation about these organizations. There have been a number of really excellent books that have come out in recent years thinking about conservative activists and donors. I think most prominently about Jane Mayer's book, Dark Money, but also Gordon Lafer has uh, an excellent book called The 1% Solution. And there's been a great investigative journalism on groups like ALEC from the Center for Media and Democracy, um, as well as the National Committee for Responsive Philanthropy. I use a lot of this work, but I take a slightly different perspective. I take an organizational perspective. A lot of this work focuses on the individuals, either the individual lawmakers or the individual donors who are setting up these organizations, but I take an organizational picture, which means I think about how these organizations operate, why they take on different forms, and where they're most successful and why. So in the last part of my opening remarks, I wanted to go through three of the main arguments that I make in the book, what I call what the right got right, um, and that what I think provide broader lessons about power in American politics. And I hope that they're things that we can put on the table and discuss in more detail in the question and answer session. So these are three ways in which I think that conservative groups in the Troika, ALEC, the State Policy Network, and Americans for Prosperity have been especially successful in pushing their policy ideas across the states. These include the first, which is taking advantage of under-resourced state legislatures, the second, bridging together disparate and conflicting interests who might not be on the same page, and the third, thinking about policy, not just as a way of solving technical problems, but as a way of building and sustaining political power. So I want to go into each of those in a little bit more detail. So the first, under-resourced state legislatures. So it's hard to overstate the extent to which in many states lawmakers simply don't have all that much time or staff help to develop legislation on their own. So on this slide, I've put up a, a chart of legislative professionalism. Um, that's a measure that political scientists use to capture the sort of resources that lawmakers have. States that are darker in their color have more resources. States that are lighter have fewer resources. In these lighter states, lawmakers spend less time on the job, have shorter legislative sessions, fewer staffers, and are paid less. And you can see that in most states, lawmakers really don't have all that much in the way of staff help. Legislative sessions are just a few months. Some states don't even meet every year for legislative, um, uh, for legislative sessions. And salaries are often quite low in many of these states, meaning that lawmakers have to take on other jobs. In fact, in the 14 least resourced states, lawmakers only spend about half of their time on the job um, being a lawmaker. They're paid only about $18,000 on average, and they only have about 160 staffers on which they can rely. All of this means that outside organizations can be incredibly effective by giving lawmakers the resources that they otherwise lack, giving them ideas for legislation, particularly the text of the bills that they would need, the research support that they need, the studies that can back up why that bill is important, the names of witnesses who can testify on behalf of that bill, and political strategy that can help them get that bill over the finish line. And that's exactly what ALEC has done. Um, in the book, I have a number of surveys and interviews with lawmakers that really established the case that ALEC recognized that it could provide these resources that lawmakers would otherwise lack. And in the book, I cite this interview with Oregon State Representative Gene Wisnett that I think does a nice job of summing up how this works. According to Representative Wisnett, ALEC is a great resource for a part-time lawmaker like him whose staff is comprised of his wife, who works half-time, and an aide who works three days a week when the legislature is not in session. We have such limited staff that ALEC helps us look at things and consider them. The second strategy that I think made these conservative organizations so successful was getting different groups who might want different things on the same page. I think there's a tendency on the left in particular to think about the right as being all on the same page. 
the conservative movement only wants smaller government, lower taxes, smaller government, less regulation. But as I show in the book, especially in the 70s and 80s, many of these organizations were trying to weave together coalitions of social conservatives who cared intensely about abortion or gay rights um, or the Equal Rights Amendment, uh, businesses that wanted lower taxes but also subsidies and regulations to keep their competitors out, and libertarians who wanted smaller government, lower, uh, lower regulatory burdens, and fewer subsidies for private sector businesses. And as you can see, those three sets of actors don't necessarily share the same sort of priorities or preferences. Um, just by way of example, I've put up here Alex membership from the 1980s, and you can see a number of large private sector companies like Monsanto, Shell, or UPS, uh, and some libertarian groups like the National Taxpayers Union, and of course, social conservative groups like the National Rifle Association. So how did Alec get these groups on the same page? Well, as I describe in the book, a key figure is Sam Brunelli, a football player uh, for the Denver Broncos who went on to head the organization. And his innovation was to come up with a set of task forces that were geared around particular policy areas. And if you cared about a policy area, you only participated in that task force. And that helped decentralize the agenda setting process for this organization. Moreover, when there were conflicts between different actors within a task force, a business wanted one thing, a libertarian group wanted another, whoever paid more to the organization would get the final say over the model bill that ended up being enacted. And this was really efficient. It managed to get these organizations all on the same page about what they wanted from Alec. The last strategy that I think has made these groups so successful is not just thinking about policy as a way of solving a specific technical problem, but a way of reshaping power relations. And I think nowhere is that clearer than with labor union policy. I think these organizations, and especially ALEC, were incredibly successful in selling all of their members on the idea that labor reform should be their day one priority. Not because social conservatives would necessarily care about, say, cutting back teachers' unions' rights, but because if you cut back the power of labor unions, you make it harder for Democrats to win future elections, to pass progressive legislation, and therefore you pave the way for future conservative initiatives on social issues or business issues or any other set of issues. So it's about sequencing policy in the right way and thinking about policy as a way of reshaping power. Um, as I've shown in other work uh, with co-authors, when states pass right-to-work laws, like the ones that have passed in recent states like Michigan or Indiana or Wisconsin, it really does make it harder for Democrats to win elections and public policy in those states moves to the ideological right as a result of weaker labor unions and weaker progressive movements in these states. So those are the three strategies that I think made the right so successful, what the right got right, and I hope we can use those as a starting off point to think about differences with the left and what all of this means for American democracy. And I look forward to your questions um, and uh, Larry's probing as well. So we've got Alec and Alex. We're gonna try <laughs> to keep that straight. Um, well, thank you very much. This is a very provocative book. Uh, I think if you um, are looking for a smart read and really th uh, thought-provoking, this is a good book to sit down with and spend some time with. Let me start off with a broad question, which is, what kind of book is this? Um, usually, you know, academic books, uh, and I'm not necessarily recommending this in terms of readability, but they'll lay out competing arguments, some competing theories, and they'll say, ah, oh, here's two or three different ways to, to understand this problem, and then the researcher goes through the evidence and kind of parses out which explanation works. This is less like that. It, it reads almost like a how-to for progressives uh, who are kind of losing out on this fight against this, as you call it, conservative troika. Yeah, well, thanks for that question. I think that this book is trying to do both things. It's trying to understand in a rigorous way using the tools of social science, such as interviews. I conduct surveys of state lawmakers, surveys of political advocacy groups, and I dig into the archives of these organizations to understand what made them successful, what contributed to their missteps, and what we can learn from all of this. But ultimately, uh, I am interested in this question of, of what made them successful and what the left could learn from those. Um, so I view it as being both. 
there's um, quite a bit of uh, talk at various points about organizational uh, combat. There's not a whole lot of conflict here, though. It really tends to be a story about the conservatives on the march, sending out information, and winning, for the most part, with some exceptions. Where are the progressive groups? Is this like they've abandoned the battlefield, uh, or that the conservatives are just so much better organized and resourced that they're not even you know, kind of in the fight? I think I would push back a little on the first part of your question, which is to say that this is a story of conservative victory. In some ways, I very self-consciously tried to set out to read history forward from the 1970s onwards and not to assume that just because the conservative organizations I study are successful today, that they've always been successful. The political scientist Steve Tellis has this great uh, phrase, the myth of diabolical conservative competence, which I think is all too prevalent um, amongst many journalists and folks on the left. And I very self-consciously try and understand both the moments of success, of which there are many, but also the moments of failure. For instance, in the 1980s and 90s, when ALEC nearly went bankrupt, for instance, or when the state policy network was really struggling to get off the ground. And I think studying those moments of weakness really illuminate the sort of choices that these organizations made that ultimately had a lot of, uh, of bearing on their future, future success. Now, to get to your second question of where is the left in all of this, um, well, to go back to the 1970s, I think it's important to remember that at that moment, conservatives felt like they were on the losing end when it came to state policy and politics. And digging through archival materials and conducting interviews with the early founders of these groups, I was really struck by how much it was a mirror image of the situation today. In particular, conservatives were very worried about teachers unions and public sector employee unions that had just gotten the right to collectively bargain and had become really powerful state uh, lobbyists in the states in which they had large memberships. And crucially, and perhaps ironically, Alec pointed out that they often drafted model bills that they shared with their state affiliates, and they lobbied on a range of issues, not just related, say, to education, but to taxes and budgets as well. And so they felt they had to mobilize at the state level to cut back the power of those unions, and they've managed to do that quite successfully in a number of states. So you said you're not really holding up conservatives as this... Um you know, kind of winners of the fight over state public policy. But you do describe uh, in the book uh, what you phrase, and I'm quoting you, a dramatic rightward swing in state policy. Isn't that a, uh, you know, kind of a summation about uh, this kind of winning streak that conservatives are on and the losing streak that progressives have suffered? Yeah, so I think in their early years, especially in the 80s and even into the early 90s, the conservative groups um, might ha not have been successful if it were not for some key decisions that they made. But since then, they have been quite successful, and particularly so since, uh, since 2010. Um, but they did enjoy a number of victories in the early 2000s and late 1990s as, as well. Um, and I think, you know, looking today at the, at the snapshot of power across the states, it's clear that Republicans and conservatives through these organizations have managed to gain much more cross-state clout than have progressives. And in the book I describe that there are just very few cross-state progressive organizations that could counter the Troika. And that's not to say that there haven't been efforts over the years. And in the book I sort of recount a graveyard of uh, to mix metaphors, and I apologize for this, a graveyard of an alphabet soup of organizations with all of these different acronyms um, that have tried to counter ALEC. But, uh, but by and large, they just have not had as much success as these conservative groups. Uh, one of the, the uh, policies that you highlight uh, as an example of, of the uh, more recent successes of the conservative uh, movement is the um, uh, effort to adopt the Medicaid expansion that had been authorized by the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. And this required states, particularly after the Supreme Court ruling in 2012, it required states to actually uh, enact um, enabling legislation. So big question was, okay, would the states actually adopt the Medicaid expansion, which is a very powerful tool uh, for giving uh, coverage uh, to Americans who are poor. Um, and for some progressives, it is the most important part of Obamacare. In any case, you hold this up and you say, hey, right here we can see uh, an example of this rightward swing. Uh, here's the power and advocacy of the Troika. Um, 
Do you still feel that way? I do. I think that while there have been expansions in a number of additional Republican-controlled states since the, uh, since the publication of the book, it still remains the case that a number of states have decided to pass up the expansion and thereby pass up, you know, in some cases, billions of dollars over years to cover very poor, uninsured individuals, disproportionately minority individuals. Uh, and so I, I am still persuaded that the conservative troika's opposition to Medicaid expansion um, has had very important substantive consequences, not just for politics, but for the lives of the individuals in these states that lack health insurance. So just a little factoid here, 37 states have now adopted the Medicaid expansion. That's 73% of the states. So this large number of states that haven't adopted it is 27%. Um, and we recently saw actually uh, progressive organizations organizing in states like Idaho, Utah, Nebraska to uh, push through or put on the ballot um, uh, uh, initiatives that have uh, uh, adopted, forced the adoption of Medicaid expansion in those very conservative states, states that you point out as kind of ripe territory for, for this uh, conservative movement. Um, don't you think, I mean, it really strikes me, um, particularly after 2010, and now we're into 2018, and it feels like a different moment, that um, we're seeing some of the f um, limitations of this conservative movement, maybe other explanations, including citizens who do get organized. I think that's right broadly. I would push back on some of the specifics and say, you know, it's a big deal that Texas hasn't expanded Medicaid yet. There are a lot of poor people in Texas who lack health insurance. And while it's true that it's a, uh, over 70% of the states, a big chunk uh, of the states that lack this expansion um, uh, have large populations, like Texas, for instance. So you're still talking about a large number of individuals. Uh, that said, I think you're, you're right to point to these recent ballot initiatives to expand Medicaid, uh, going around the legislatures that are controlled by Republicans and conservatives. But quite strikingly, you've seen those state legislatures try and roll back the expansion gains. In some cases, you've seen states just drag their feet on, on uh, following through with expansion. You know, I think about Maine, but also Utah, for instance, as being examples of this, where the government seem reluctant to actually follow through on, on the will of the people. And I think it points to the overarching point in the book, which is to say, progressives can't get around the business of organizing at the state level. Ballot initiatives are certainly an important tool when you're in the opposition, but ultimately those are one-off coalitions all too frequently that don't sustain power building at the state legislative level, which is where a lot of these battles ultimately come back to. Medicare and Medicaid was passed in 1965. It wasn't until, you know, really in the last couple decades that all the states adopted the Medicaid legislation. Arizona was the last state and it was the early part of uh, this century that they did it. Um, what other factors might account for the resistance to adopting liberal federal legislation in, in states? Other than, you know, let's just take uh, this conservative troika and put it to the side. What else is going on here? Uh, well, I, think, I happen to think that the conservative troika is a big chunk of that, but I, I also think there are other factors that matter. You know, I'm persuaded by you know, work that um, uh, has been done by an excellent health policy scholar here at the Humphrey School by the name of Jacobs, uh, looking at the role of um, health professionals as being important lobbyists and public health advocates uh, in particular. And in the case studies of the Medicaid expansion that I did, it was, it was certainly the case that broad-based coalitions of doctors, public health providers, low-income services providers were incredibly important in pushing for expansion. Um, so too were businesses in some case. And in the book I talk about how the Troika is not always aligned with what big business necessarily wants. In many of these states, Republican-controlled states, where there were battles over Medicaid expansion, you had the Troika on one hand saying no, absolutely no to expansion, but you had the chambers of commerce in many of these states, I think most prominently about Missouri, going all out for expansion. And in many of these states, the Chamber of Commerce is not exactly a friend of progressive initiatives. They oppose the minimum wage, they oppose labor unions, but they understood that it meant big dollars from the federal government coming in to their communities, particularly rural communities whose economies are often powered by healthcare providers and hospitals. Uh, so I think you know, it points to these other, other factors, certainly, but it also points to these coalitional dynamics where you know, the Troika isn't always necessarily on the same page as business. So I find that 
to be honest, uh, more persuasive. Hmm. That that there are these other uh, advocates, there are splits in the conservative movement, um, that there are um, um, pressures within each state depending on the nature of their healthcare system or their economy. Um, and the mix of those things is gonna vary based on the particular point in time and uh, the particular state. Um, and you know, thinking of you know, businesses, and you talk about this in the book, and, uh, and hospitals, for instance, and places like Arizona, and, and in the South where you have seen Medicaid adopted, uh, it's a really striking and you know, surprising bedfellows <laughs> that have gotten together and said, yeah, we actually recognize that we need government help or the hosp our public hospital system will go bankrupt. The state um, budget is going to head into deficits. I think that's exactly right. And it points to a blind spot that I think exists even amongst many researchers, um, but certainly I think many on the left and many journalists, which is to take business as a monolith and say, business wants this, business wants that. You know, the business community is really diverse with very different preferences. Um, and I think what's striking about the organizations that I study in the book is that they manage to overcome those cleavages in many instances. And you have businesses in the same organization pushing for ideologically charged legislation that you might not think would necessarily be in that business's interest. But to address your, your question about whether it's in-state factors or out-of-state factors, what I think is very important about the Troika is it's nationalizing politics in a really important way. It's taking these debates that used to be state by state within state actors, for instance, dominating the discussion and making it national, bringing national resources to bear on issues like labor relations or on healthcare policy. We've got great questions here from our friends uh, who have joined us at the Humphrey School today. Uh, one of them is, what has been the influence of the conservative troika in Minnesota? That's a great question. So the influence of the troika has been limited by the fact that you haven't seen as great a degree of a Republican takeover of state institutions as you have in other states. And I think there, the comparison with, uh, with Wisconsin that so often gets made is quite striking. That, you know, where you have had uh, the opportunity to pass these bills as well as the ideas coming through, you've just seen um, the state take a complete, uh, a complete different direction. And indeed, Minnesota tends to score quite low on adoption of, of ALEC model bills, no, certainly not as high as, as other states. In the book, I, I use plagiarism detection, much as one might try and catch a student who is co copying and pasting his term paper uh, right before the deadline from, uh, from an online website. I look to see where lawmakers have plagiarized their bills from ALEC model bills. Um, and I find that, consistent with what I'm arguing, it tends to be in the states where lawmakers have fewer staffers, fewer resources. Um, shorter sessions that you see more of this plagiarism. Um. You uh, spotlight Minnesota um, in several spots in the book, and one is to put a spotlight on uh, Senator Mary Kiffmeyer, mm -hmm. who had put forward uh, one of these ALEC uh, pieces of legislation, some controversy about whether it was actually copied or dr uh, drawn upon. Um, but in any case, yeah, let's take that case, because here's a, the instance, and I think many of us will remember, in 2010, um, a constitutional amendment to require a voter ID uh, was put on the ballot. And the consequence of that was not an ALEC takeover, kind of to support your thesis. It was the opposite. It created a tremendous backlash in the state that helped usher in uh, democratic power um, in, in the legislature. Does that point to ways in which not only um, kind of um, victories, but there may actually be a backlash precisely because of the visible, um, you know, maybe heavy-handed role that Alec and the other conservatives are playing. I think that's right. I think politics is all about mobilization and counter-mobilization, and that's a great example of where when policy overreach happens, citizens have an opportunity and activists have an opportunity to capitalize on that, to build power in a sustained way that can be translated into electoral wins. You know, in, in work that I'm doing right now, I'm looking at the teacher walkouts that happened last year. These mass uh, walkouts and strikes of hundreds of thousands of teachers in very conservative red states, and they were often responding 
leading to large cuts in education spending that were the result of bills that were pushed by the Troika. I think that's another great example of this sort of backlash. When you go too far, you end up provoking um, activists and citizens uh, to take real risks in order to build political power. You mentioned backlash, and one of the questions we have here is, do you believe that there was a backlash against Barack Obama's policies that helped the uh, conservatives and may have given legitimacy to some of their arguments? It's an interesting question, and it gets at the broader issue of whether you know, 2010 was uh, a blip, uh, or sorry, uh, not a blip, but a sort of a, a, a an unusual moment in, in political time or whether it was part of a longer trend, whether it was part of a backlash that was unique to Obama or whether it was part of a longer historical development. I think it's a little bit of both. Um, we knew that Democrats were going to have losses at the state level, given that voters tend to reward the out party um, in uh, midterm elections like that. But I think that what was unprecedented was the degree to which Democrats lost control at the state level, precisely because they were not focused on a lot of those races uh, in a way that, that Republicans were. And in addition, Republicans had ideas ready to go as soon as those governments were elected. It's not enough just to win these elections. You have to have the ideas and policy and the sequence of policies all set up once you gain office. And I think that's what's lacking on the left. Um, it's quite striking that the playbook that these Republicans pursue across states when they gain control is so similar. And I think that's because of the organizations like the ones that I study in the book. Um, question from the audience, uh, which is, are you describing uh, efforts by conservatives that you consider to be illegal or nefarious? Or is this just, you know, Americans exercising their constitutional rights? That's a really important question, and it's one that I tackle head on in the book. And I say that nothing I have documented in this book is illegal, and nor should it be. I think it is perfectly legal and indeed desirable in a democracy to have activists organize in political associations and try and bring about policy change. And if you dislike what the Troika is doing, I think the solution is not to try and outlaw it, but to create organizations of your own that can counter that power from the left. And I think this touches on another issue, which, uh, which hasn't really been brought up, but I think is important to put on the table. And that's the issue of elections and campaign spending, which is important, to be sure, and receives, I think, a lot of attention, perhaps too much attention, from liberal reformers who are concerned about corporate influence or conservative influence. As I show in the book, only one of these organizations, Americans for Prosperity, is involved in elections. ALEC and the State Policy Network are not. And I, in the book, I focus quite deliberately on what happens in between elections, because I think that's a big part of the Troika's story. Um, and so uh, in the book, I, I, I go through some back-of-the-envelope calculations that suggest that even if you had pretty restrictive campaign finance regulations in place, it's unlikely to cut back substantially in the clout of ALEC or the State Policy Network, because you still have these under resourced lawmakers who are looking for ideas. I think that is a particularly uh, persuasive part of the book, because uh, it's true. I just finished a study of uh, campaign spending during the 2018 uh, Minnesota state and federal elections, and it puts a spotlight on precisely the election and the amount of money going in. But what about the kind of non-election cycle? And what about um, the influence that's exercised, not by giving money to a legislator, but by giving them um, the capacity through model legislation, through other kinds of resources that would enable them to pursue an agenda of the left or the right. And, and there I think it's, it's, a, um, it's a blind spot. I don't think there are many um, journalists and political scientists who focused on these issues that you've brought to light. Hmm. So there are several questions here um, really about kind of the broader um, issue of the book, which is what is the overarching goal of conservatives? You referred to them, but what is the big picture? What are they, what are they trying to achieve? It's an interesting question and one that is hard to answer in the abstract, and I think that's a source of strength for these groups, that Alec in particular never tried to advance a particular overarching worldview, um, as best as I can tell. They were willing to 
you know, make coalitions between these different actors who cared a lot about state policy and pushing, they were willing to push policy that those actors wanted. Um, and so its goals and its um, emphasis on different issues has changed over time as its membership has changed. In its early years, it tended to be dominated by social conservatives, especially religious conservatives. And so it spent a whole lot of time on those things. In the 90s, it tended to be dominated more by companies, and so therefore it focused on business issues. And then in the 2000s, you saw a return to some social and ideological conservative issues like voter ID laws or gun rights, for instance, and it began pushing those. So I think in some ways it's been a strength. Um, now, on the other hand, Americans for Prosperity is part of the Koch political network, which is very much, um, I would say, an ideologically informed organization. Uh, say what you will about the Kochs, but I think they're deeply committed to the libertarian worldview that they uh, put forward in their public remarks. And you've seen Americans for Prosperity, for instance, lobby against business subsidies or supports that the Kochs themselves would benefit from. So I think this follows up um, um, on, on what you just said, which is, what is it about the conservative troika that gives them the advantage over progressives? And if you were to kind of, you know, as like a doctor give a prescription to progressives who said, oh yeah, we're neglecting the states, and we need to do more across all the states, not just, you know, pick out a few. What, what would be your short list of Go home and take this medicine. <laughs> or maybe go home and come back to me in, in 20 years when you built up these organizations. Um, so, you know, you said assuming that they would focus on the states. That's a, big, that's a big if and one that has not been true across the years. You've seen sporadic attention from left-wing donors to the states, but it's tended to be started and stopped um, as Democrats have gained control at the national level. When Democrats are out of power, you see a return to the states. When they get power in the White House or in Congress, you see a, a, a reduced attention to the state. So paying attention to the states is a big deal and something that I think progressives and especially donors haven't done enough of. The second piece of advice that I would have is focus on all states. You, when you have seen progressive cross-state organizing, it's all too often tended to focus on blue states with strong labor movements that already have a strong progressive presence and far too frequently has focused on the mass of more conservative states throughout the, the whole country. And that's important because if you want to have real impact in people's lives, you have to organize across the whole country. A great example of this, I think, is the Fight for 15 movement, which has done amazing work to raise the minimum wage at the state and local level all across the country but they've had a real limitation to their reach because in many of these red states, when they've tried to raise the minimum wage at the city level, the Republican-controlled state government will preempt that legislation at the city level, meaning that the state um, limits whether or not cities can actually pass these increases to minimum wages. So you can't just focus on a handful of states. It has to be the whole country. And the third uh, piece of advice that I would have is to think really strategically about the sequencing of policy. You know, you mentioned the Medicaid expansion. It was so striking to me in going through interviews and archival material of left-wing donors how little attention they paid to the Medicaid expansion uh, when this was really a live issue in 2013, 14, and 15. There's a major consortium of progressive donors called the Democracy Alliance, and during that period, it was not one of their top priorities. I say this is a huge missed opportunity because we know from political science research that, you know, that Larry has done, among others, that when you have social programs like Medicaid, it builds a constituency for those social programs going forward. It creates identities that people have that attach them to government and make them more likely to participate in politics. In short, it's exactly the sort of power-building policy reform that progressives should be putting forward to counter things like right-to-work laws or cutbacks to labor unions. There you go again with the kind of Eeyore interpretation of the, the progressives, um, where they don't quite get it right. The conservatives, they tend to get it right. But let me ask you about this case, which I think talks to this very important point about the way in which policy reshapes politics and power. And you talked about unions and the way in which um, the conservatives went after public um, sector unions, the way to reduce the power of uh, Democrats. Well. When Obamacare was passed, California was one of the first and most aggressive states out of the gates to implement it. And here's what they did. If you go to the California uh, Health Insurance Exchange to sign up for Obamacare's benefits, the subsidies, and choose an um, insurer, 
you're also given an option. Would you like to register to vote? Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? That's exactly the kind of thing that I think would build power on the progressive side, but all too frequently gets left by the wayside. You know, perhaps most strikingly, during the Obama administration, they designed a stimulus program that would give a little bit of money with each person's paycheck uh, in order to increase the purchasing power of the country. And they did this by changing the withholding that people had uh, on their paycheck uh, to pay taxes. And the economists loved this idea because there was good research to suggest that people are more likely to increase their spending in response to an economic stimulus if they um, don't know that they're getting a big lump sum check, that if they get it in these little tiny amounts, they're more likely to spend it. Uh, the bad news, though, is that no one realized that they got a tax cut. A polling that was done after the stimulus went into effect indicated that um, you know, nine out of 10 people either thought that Obama raised their taxes or didn't change their taxes, when in fact their taxes went down by a big amount. So if a tax cut happens and no one knows about it, does it have any sort of political consequences? The answer is no. And I think, you know, Progressives all too frequently focus on the technical details of policy at the expense of good politics. Is there something about liberalism or progressivism that makes it inherently difficult to consistently organize across states? Hmm. That's a really great question. And I think in some ways, yes, there is a strand within progressive politics that thinks about state policy as being inherently constrained, um, inherently constrained by two different factors. One of them is the long reach of Jim Crow and the horrible atrocities that states particularly, but not exclusively in the South, visited upon racial and ethnic minorities. And then two, a sense that states can't do all that much because they try and appease businesses. Um, you know, uh, state governments will be reluctant to raise taxes or regulation in a substantial way because they're afraid of businesses up in leaving their state. Um, and some of those explanations are both true. You know, when you delegate civil rights to the state level, you do see um, sometimes states rolling back protections, and states often are reluctant to impose big taxes on businesses that could be used to redistribute resources. But on the whole, when I look at the history of progressive politics in this country, you know, I think it's, you see a big role for state-level innovation. You know, the unemployment insurance and various forms of social protection were previewed at the state level before they found their way to the New Deal. And more generally, um, you've seen this in other major pieces of legislation, including Obamacare, which was uh, previewed in Massachusetts before it was developed at the, at the federal level. Um, and so I think it's, it's hard to ignore the states, even, even if you subscribe to these, uh, these limits on, on state power. Um, and I, I don't think a, a focus on federalism is inconsistent with a progressive worldview. Um, a, a question uh, here is essentially asking, um, isn't ALEC and the other conservative organizations that you've identified saving the states from um, uh, bankruptcy, that the kinds of programs that the progressives want to pass uh, would far exceed what businesses and taxpayers could afford. That's a great question, um, and I think it's up for debate. It's up for debate within the citizenry of each state to decide what the appropriate tax and spending mix is, and ALEC plays a role in helping provide resources and ideas to lawmakers who are especially sensitive to the costs of government and costs on the private sector. But I think it would be a mistake to only listen to one side of that perspective, and so I worry that there isn't a coordinated effort on the other side making the case for um, government programs and for taxes that could spend uh, resources on important public investments. Um, I, I tend to think that democracy works best when you have representation on, on both sides of these issues. So the absence of progressive cross-state organizing, I think, is worrisome here. Question from the audience. I question that the right is using public policy to influence political power. I'd say they're using fear and lies. Hmm. Um, <laughs> well, there's certainly some components of the Republican Party that I think uh, capitalize on, on fear and lies, particularly at the national level. Um, but, you know, I think the organizations that, uh, that I study in the book, they really do think about policy in this way of, of building political power. And um, it's not just the teachers' unions. Um, I think it's quite notable that they've also uh, focused on organizations like Planned Parenthood, which in addition to providing public health services um, uh, for low-income populations is also an incredibly politically important 
part of the Democratic coalition, very involved in elections and, and policy debates, and of course, ACORN as well. Um, these organizations, especially ALEC and the State Policy Network, um, uh, organized in a big way against uh, ACORN, which was an, an important force on the progressive side, uh, trying to build power at the local and the state level. You've been talking about how conservative advocates uh, have used the public policy arena and leg state legislatures uh, to move policy. How about private employers uh, who have been uh, making efforts, according to this question, to influence their employees and try to mobilize them as a political force? Um, well, I think the, the questioner who maybe perhaps is familiar with some of my earlier research and my first book, which was called Politics at Work, which was very much on this question about how employers are increasingly, you know, thinking about using their workers as, as a political resource, um, uh, getting them involved in policy debates at the state level, in national government, um, and in elections. Um, and so that's a trend that you've seen increase over time and that actually received a, a, a boost from Citizens United, um, which made it legal for companies to spend their own resources on elections so long as they're not coordinated with a candidate or a party. And you've seen many businesses becoming more comfortable, for instance, with giving voter guides to their employees with endorsed candidates and encouraging them to participate in politics. Um, so in many ways, I, I think about state capture as being uh, a sequel of sorts to this first book, trying to think about ways that private actors, whether they're coalitions of businesses and conservatives or private sector employees, how they exercise power in American democracy. Is Minnesota an exception to your story? If you look in Minnesota, the Democrats have raised a lot more money uh, through uh, campaign contributions. They coordinate because some of the big funders won't give money to some of the political groups unless there's, they, they buy into the um, consortium. We see unions like SEIU and the teachers union, uh, very effective, very active, um, plenty of strong arm tactics that, that you describe uh, involving uh, the right wing, and they've been very successful. I mean, you talk about a right wing swing. In Minnesota over the last 10 years or so, we've seen a pretty strong leftward swing in terms of higher taxes, more spending on education, and healthcare. I think that's a fair characterization, and I would say that you know Minnesota and a handful of other states sort of preview what full democratic control looks like when you have a strong base of progressive in-state organizations. Um, you know, I also think uh, of California, now New York, with the with the flipping of the state legislature, Connecticut as being examples of this. Um, but the trouble is, if you are on the left, there aren't a lot of examples like this to point to. Um, and so I think that's part of the challenge, is that, uh, that Democrats don't have a lot of these opportunities to try out these ideas because they lack control at the state level. And your, your fundamental point is you can have kind of, I don't know, socialism within one state, but that uh, the impact of progressive ideas across the country um, is uh, much more limited without this this kind of consistent, sustained uh, funding and organizing um, that you point to on the conservative side. I think that's exactly right, yeah. Um, so, a uh, bunch of questions here, I'm kind of walking through, thank you. Um, can the use of the resources that Alec and the others offer be tracked to individual legislators? Can you mm -hmm. name names? So in the book, I do this. I look at these instances of plagiarism when lawmakers copy and paste bill ideas and text from ALEC, and I have for both states and individual lawmakers what proportion of introduced bills and enacted bills come from ALEC model bills. And so if folks are interested in that, I can definitely uh, definitely share that data. There's also been a, a new initiative by USA Today that was just launched last week uh, that uses a similar approach of plagiarism detection to look at model bill reuse, not not just from ALEC, but a range of other organizations on the left and the right and from businesses. Um, and so that's another great resource that, that individuals can, can turn to. Um, you've uh, made the point that one of the reasons that the conservatives have been so effective is that many state uh, legislatures and legislators lack the resource to do their job. And I guess the question is, what about the resources that do exist at the national level, whether it's the national uh, state uh, legislative conference or the council of state government and some others that, that are there that do research on um, 
particular policy, or whether it's healthcare or taxes or pension reform, and plenty of, of foundations as well. Aren't they stepping in and helping uh, legisl legislators as well? Certainly, and over the years they've been very important organizations, and I have a, a chapter in the book that goes through the history of these good government, nonpartisan, bipartisan organizations, um, and a sort of a key figure is Henry Toll, um, who uh, at, the, at the time of the New Deal, a little bit before, founded one of the first organizations of lawmakers across the states trying to build resources and support for them, because if you think that the problems of information are acute now, you can only imagine at the... Uh, and the first half of the, of the 20th century, what lawmakers had to deal with, even as the demands on state government were increasing. So they have certainly played a role. But there is a role for more ideologically oriented organizations, too. You know, NCSL and the Council of State Governments are studiously nonpartisan, bipartisan. And so it doesn't offer much in the way of help for lawmakers who are looking for, say, legislation that's right-leaning or left-leaning um, and associated with a particular worldview. Indeed, I view that as being an essential role that ALEC and, to a lesser extent, the state policy network have played. They're not just subsidizing, so to speak, lawmakers uh, to help them pass legislation that they would otherwise want to pass. They're defining what it means to be a conservative state lawmaker. Um, I think many state lawmakers are elected, you know, knowing that they might be on the left or the right, but they don't really know what specific policies correspond to that worldview. And that's what these organizations do. They sort of fill in the empty bucket, so to speak, of the ideas um, on specific issues that lawmakers should care about. That, um, and that's a function that NCSL and the Council of State Governments really aren't equipped to, to, to fill. You've uh, focused on states. Uh, question here, uh, what about cities? Are they the new battleground? Hmm. Yeah, our city's the answer. So I think it's tempting for progressives to focus on cities, given that cities tend to skew to the left. Um, I think if you look at a list of the, the hundred largest cities in the United States, there, you know, uh, the vast uh, vast share of them are controlled by left-leaning or Democratic uh, council members and mayors. Um, but it would be tempting, but I think it's ultimately a mistake. And it's a mistake because in the United States, it's states that have the final say over what happens within their boundaries. And as you've seen with the case of preemption, it's just all too easy for a Republican-controlled legislature and governor to come in and undo important gains that are made at the city level. The Fight for 15 is one great example of this. Another great example is the paid sick and family leave movement across the U.S. A number of cities have been taking the, the initiative on this, given that the U.S. is one of the last advanced democracies to have a national paid sick and, and paid leave, family leave program. But, you know, in red states, when cities do this, the legislatures tend to swoop in and undo their efforts. After this book went to press, 2018 election happened, and Democrats did very well. They picked up uh, net 308 uh, legislative seats. They flipped um, a handful of state houses. Uh, seven governorships went from the Republican um, column to the Democrat, including in some of the states that you highlight, like Wisconsin and Michigan. Um, how do you factor in that success by progressives across states? I should be clear that the object is not to explain any one particular election, but sort of the broad sweep of policy and politics over the states. Uh, and I think 2018, in many ways, um, was a wave election. It was responding to a very unpopular president. There was unprecedented citizen and activist mobilization, and all of that contributed to the sort of gains that you're discussing. But I think over the longer term, the question is, do these uh, newly controlled democratic states or governorships or legislatures have the suite of ideas that can actually build sustainable power? I think it's notable, for instance, that many of these states you know, haven't taken action on rebuilding the labor movement, um, haven't taken other steps that might build progressive power over the longer term. And that's where these outside organizations, like the ones that I study in the book, I think really come in. So a uh, follow-up question from um, a member of our audience here. Um, do you see signs that progressives have gotten the message and are making the kind of sustained organizational financial investments uh, in uh, state organizing? I think that they have recognized the depth of their failure to do so. 
So that's an important first step. I think there is a desire amongst donors to give to new organizations that could build power on the left. I think it's unclear whether or not there are organizations that are well positioned to capitalize on that. Um, there was the most recent flurry of activity came out of 2014. There was, a, was an organization that was founded then that I study um, in the ensuing years in the book. Um, it sort of looks like they're still focusing on mostly blue and purplish states that you don't really have the whole cross state um, organizing in a sustained way that you would want. Um, but you know, that's not to say that it can't happen. And I think the fact that you are really recognizing this need on the left is um, that's an important first step. One of the major uh, possible competing sources of funding, at least, is the Democracy Alliance, which are the uh, Democrats' billionaires. And they've been putting in money, quite a bit of money. At some points, they've even rivaled uh, what the Koch uh, brother um, consortium has been able to raise. Do you see a change in their behavior that would lead you to say, this, the fight is on? They recognize the, the depth of these problems and they have been taking action by creating you know, funds that focus exclusively on state policy and politics. And so I think that that is important. Um, you know, they've also been coordinating donor tables across the states um, and that's been a success story in several states. Um, these are tables of in-state donors who agree to sort of pool their resources in a concerted manner to make sure that they're not duplicating their efforts and they're building a long-term infrastructure. But the degree to which these tables have had success is variable and in the state in the in the book I go through some examples of these some for the better some for the worse um, so you know that's an important first step for sure um, you know a challenge that the democracy alliance this club of, of wealthy liberal donors has faced is that they give their donors a lot more autonomy than donors on the right have with the Koch seminars so when you enroll in the Koch seminars as best as um, I, as I can tell you're committed to giving to the Koch brothers priorities which include at their center uh, Americans for Prosperity, which receives an overwhelming proportion of the donations that are raised at their fundraising meetings. Whereas on the left, with the Democracy Alliance, they're funding you know, over 100 different organizations. And so that means that each organization tends to receive a little small slice of, of what is a lower aggregate amount than exists on the right. Um, so you just have much more fragmented and limited giving on the left. Now, I mentioned that the Democracy Alliance recognizes these issues and has been trying to move away from that, but once you give donors autonomy, it's hard to roll that back. Um, as you can imagine, these are personalities who are sort of used to having their way in, in other realms of their lives, and so it could be difficult to sort of get them all to commit to, to the same agenda. Um, this seems incredibly ironic. Libertarian organization denying choice <laughs> to its donors. Um, how do you, how is a, it? A free, do, free market, uh, uh, marketplace, uh, bazaar on the left, right? Yeah. yeah. So how, what, how do you, how did, how did the, um, the Koch brothers network and the, this conservative consortium become so, um, dictatorial, um, and, and kind of restricting choice? their donors. How did that happen? It's a fascinating question and ultimately in order to get a complete answer I think uh, you'd have to have in-depth interviews with either the brothers themselves or their key political lieutenants which unfortunately my co-author uh, Theda Scotchpole who will be talking later this week here in this forum um, we have not yet secured those interviews, but as best as we can tell from the leaked materials that we have access to, as well as the financial records of these organizations, is a lot of it goes back to the rules that were put in place initially in these organizations. And you know, the Koch brothers were very clear from the outset that they were going to focus on a core set of organizations. And so over time, um, they uh, they managed to enforce that. It wasn't always the case. I mean, at some points in time, they were scattering money more widely um, in 2000. 12, most notably, they were giving money to a whole range of different organizations. But I think after they lost that election, they really doubled down on this strategy of funding mostly the organizations that they directly helm, like Americans for Prosperity, most notably. Um, on the left, 
the Democracy Alliance was actually founded out of this sense that there were a whole range of progressive organizations, but they weren't on the same page, and there wasn't what they called an infrastructure. And so the idea really was, much as the Koch brothers are doing now, to develop a core set of progressive organizations that would all be on the same page, including some mainstays that exist now, like the Center for American Progress and Media Matters for America, the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. These are sort of big components of the progressive infrastructure in DC. Um, but over time, as they sort of struggled to add additional donors, um, they gave those donors um, uh, greater autonomy and say over the organizations that are on the list, the sort of approved list of organizations. And that means that the list kept expanding. There would be various points where the list would get cut, but then it would get expanded once again as they tried to attract more donors. There's a lot of consternation among progressives about Donald Trump's uh, impact and his legacy and some are saying that democracy is dying in America and um, that uh, the country's um, commitment to human rights, to trade, to immigration is all being rolled back. Um, but the question here is whether Donald Trump may actually be uh, contributing to rebirth or re-energizing of progressives at the state level and at the national level. Do you think that's just hopeful thinking or is there something to it? I think both can be true. We can be concerned about the ways in which Trump is uh, violating important norms uh, that underpin democracy, you know, norms like respecting the press, uh, uh, the way in which we talk about racial and ethnic minorities. We can be concerned about those violations of norms and also think that he's contributing to this counter-mobilization and really rebirth of a lot of progressive organizing at the local level. Um, you know, as Fida has documented in some of her ongoing work, these resistance groups, some of them in, in many states have had a significant presence in revitalizing local democratic parties that had gone moribund, that were really, um, you know, committees that were either empty or filled with people who really weren't doing all that much, and they've inserted new vibrancy in the party. Um, and I think that's important. At the state level, you know, yeah, you've seen some battles over important state policy and referendum and, and initiatives like the ones that you mentioned. And so I think um, it points to a hopeful direction. Three uh, final things here as we're running out of time. Uh, first, and, and I, I hate to ask the hardest question last, why the bright colored socks, one of our <laughs> folks here want to know. Just so you would notice, so. <laughs> um, the other is I want to remind you, uh, Alex's book is right out here for sale and that he will be hanging around to sign them. And third, I want to recognize my colleague, Kate Samino. Hi everyone, thanks for coming today. A um, couple things about our upcoming events that we have in our series. I know a lot of you enjoy those. This Thursday we have um, Theta Scotchpole from Harvard is gonna be here to talk about, I think Larry mentioned it earlier, uh, if you're into kind of this going deep on the political trends, uh, she's a good one to hear from. And then on uh, May 2nd we have Hari Han from UC Santa Barbara. He's gonna be talking about mobilizing on at the progressive side and how uh, could that be shifted into a longer term strategy over time. And so, and then uh, some of you have heard about our event series going around the state to different parts of Minnesota looking at the aging of Minnesota's workforce and how older adults can be part of Minnesota's workforce solution. Uh, our trip down to Austin, Minnesota was rescheduled from March during the winter that we can't seem to get out of. <laughs> uh, it was rescheduled to May 3rd. So we're gonna be down in Austin. If you feel like doing a road trip or you have friends in that part of the state, um, please let them know. And then finally, on your program, we've, uh, we have some thanks on the back there to our major donors who support our initiatives uh, through their gifts to our center. And we also have individuals who contribute at all levels. Uh, and we encourage you to consider getting involved in our donor circle. That is a gift to the University of Minnesota Foundation. It's a charitable gift um, that supports our work here and um, these kinds of conversations, talking about some really important topics across the political spectrum. So thank you for being here and have a good rest of the day.